Let's out and turn to Luke chapter 6 this morning. We're talking about how to tell winners from losers. How many of you uh, filled out a college bracket and made it the whole way through without your breaking up your bracket? Anybody? No winners. Anybody get close? Make it to the final four? Got one or two? Good, good. So we consider you winners. You made it that far, right? How do, we, um, how do we determine who is a winner and who is a loser? Pastor Kyle was talking about dodgeball and uh, people that survived to the very end, gaga. Uh, we usually look up at the scoreboard, don't we? We see the person that has the most points is the winner and everybody else is, is the loser. And we, whether it's in sports or in life, we have ways of measuring Winning and, and winning is always this person does so much better than this person in this particular area. When it's in sports and athletics, obviously the scoreboard, uh, the points up on the board tell us that. But as we get through life, you know, you, know, you play sports in high school, you play them in college, and then you, you leave them. Most people aren't playing sports, at least uh, competitively, after college very much. And so now we move into other areas of life, and we determine winning and losing by different yardsticks. And that's really what I want us to talk about this morning. Think about what kind of yardstick do we use to determine whether I or somebody else is a winner or a loser. So we get, you know, get out of college and so forth, maybe determined by who gets the girl or who gets the position in, in the company, uh, who makes the most money. And we look throughout life and we say, that person is a winner. That person has achieved or accomplished such and such. This person, not so much. And not only do we do that uh, in our minds about other people, we do that about ourselves, don't we? Um, I'm a success, that person's not, by virtue of this particular yardstick. And I wonder if we, um, Pastor Kyle was talking about trying to teach our young people to think biblically. I wonder how well we do that for our own determination of winning and losing. In other words, how, do we kind of succumb to the way the world or the crowd looks at winning and losing, or have we, re have we reframed and reshaped our determination of what's, what's winning and what's losing, who's a winner and who's a loser, by virtue of the things that God says. And this morning we're going to read um, in Luke, uh, Luke's version of the Beatitudes. You might be familiar with that from the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. Um, Jesus had the advantage of being an itinerant preacher. Uh, he didn't have the same congregation, the same audience Sunday in and Sunday out. So he preached the same sermons over and over again before different crowds. And this is probably a different sermon than the, than the Sermon on the Mount in terms of a different time because uh, in our text, uh, the verses before our text, it says that he was speaking here in a low-level place as opposed to on the mountainside like the Sermon on the Mount. But he was, it was essentially the same content with some interesting additions. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, blessed are you if you do this. Blessed are you if you do this. Here in Luke chapter 6, Jesus says, Bless, you're blessed, 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 blessed. And then he says, but woe to you, woe to you, woe to you. And so let's read these uh, few verses. Let me pray for us. Then we're going to read them and then talk about them. Father, I pray for the uh, power and the work of the Holy Spirit this morning. Because as hard as we try, it's, it's inevitable that we are um, moved and molded and even manipulated at times 
by the way the world views things, the way the crowd around us perceives things. And it's always good for us to take uh, stop, take stock, check our pulse and find out, all right, is, is the way we're thinking, is the way we're viewing things, is the way we're understanding ourselves and the world around us really being shaped by um, the Word of God, Spirit of God, or is it being more shaped by the message of the world around us and their perception? And I pray for that this morning. I, I realize, Lord, that a, apart from your work, um, my heart doesn't change, my thinking doesn't change, that apart from your work, uh, none of us changes how we think and how we understand, how we perceive, what we promote, what we applaud. And so I pray for the work of the Holy Spirit this morning. And I pray against the work of the enemy whose um, preferences and whose um, delights and whose um, agenda totally clashes with yours and totally clashes with ours when we're walking in the Spirit. So I pray that you would bind him and muzzle him this morning. Uh, for all of us, Lord, whether we know Christ or kind of on the way yet, I pray that you would have something to say to us that would be beneficial, that would be life-giving, that would be full of oxygen for the glory of God and for our good. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> Luke chapter 6, <clears throat> excuse me, beginning of verse 20. <clears throat> Now, I should say that Jesus, uh, prior to this, Jesus has spent an entire night in prayer up in a mountain by himself with the Father. He's come down off the mountain, and as a result of that intercession that night, that communion with his Father, he chooses 12 men to be his protégés, to come under him and for him to teach and for him to mentor, uh, to, for them to do ministry with him, and then for him to release them to do ministry independently. Independently. And so now is this first time, his first, <clears throat> excuse me, his first opportunity to speak into their lives. But it's not just them. <clears throat> it's not just them that he's talking to because in the prior verses to this, there's a lot of people who have come being healed. He's casting out demons and so forth. And so he's about to speak to his disciples. This is the inner circle. But there's a lot of people gathered around behind them. And so he has conversation first to the disciples, his 12, his chosen 12, and then to everybody else that's out on the perimeter who's maybe interested in his ministry, who's maybe not, maybe just curious, many of whom are perhaps wrestling with, is this guy the real deal? Do I follow him? Do I pay any attention to him? Verse 20, then Jesus turned to his disciples and said, God blesses you who are poor. <clears throat> For the kingdom of God is yours. Notice the present tense. God blesses you who are hungry now, for you will be, future tense, filled, satisfied. God blesses you who weep now, for in due time, again future, you will laugh. What blessings await you when people hate you and exclude you and mock you and curse you as evil because you follow the Son of Man? When that happens, be happy. Yes, leap for joy, for a great reward awaits you in heaven. Again, future. And remember, their ancestors, he's talking about these critics, their ancestors treated the ancient prophets that same way. And now he speaks not to just the 12 down before him, but the people gathered around behind them. What sorrow awaits you who are rich? 
for you have your only happiness now. Present tense. What sorrow awaits you, future. What sorrow awaits you who are fat and prosperous now. He's not making a comment on obesity here. In Jesus' day, and really through the much of the history up to the early 20th, early 20th century, to be fat, to be plump, was, to, was a mark of prestige, of wealth, and of power. So he's speaking to those people. Wait, what sorrow awaits you who are fat and prosperous now for a time of awful hunger awaits you? What sorrow awaits you who laugh now for your laughing will turn to mourning and sorrow, again, future. What sorrow awaits you who are praised by the crowds for their ancestors also praised false prophets? <clears throat> Excuse me. So I want to ask you this morning, are you following Jesus and this, I, I think this is beneficial whether you're uh, on the way to Jesus or say, I am a follower of Jesus. Are you following Jesus or are you sticking with following the crowd? Because each keeps score differently. The crowd keeps score in one way. And Jesus keeps score in another way. And while the crowd measures winning by this life, Jesus measures winning by the next life. So let's talk about which scorecard this morning we're using, which scorecard ought we to be using? Now, again, the crowd's going to tell you as they look around, you are an apparent winner if you have lots of money, if you're well-fed, if you're prosperous, if you have the good job, if sp people speak well of you. It was interesting this week, I was looking online at a, a number of studies that have been done over the uh, last 10 years on what is it that people want. What is it that people want? And as I check from study to study, sometimes they were done with hundreds of people, sometimes thousands of people. The same kinds of things kept surfacing. <clears throat> I want to be good health. Um, I want money. Uh, I want love or respect of other people. One of the interesting ones that appeared again and again, I want peace. Same kinds of desires. And as we look around at people who have achieved, you know, have gotten the golden ring, they've made it to the top rung of their career ladder, um, they've, they've been an accomplished person, they're recognized in, in the press and so forth, we, we, we say they, they've made it. Uh, according to uh, everybody's scorecard, they have made it. And interestingly enough, Jesus doesn't look at it quite the same way as we tend to look at it. When I was a, a teenager, there was an uh, early song, rock and roll song by the grassroots that said, uh, Sha-na-na-la, live for today. Sha-na-la, live for today. Uh, don't worry about tomorrow. And of course, when we talk about the money and the prestige and, and the accolades that people get and the houses they have and so forth, we're talking about what is here today, right? Don't worry about tomorrow. When the day comes when I achieve room temperature. Um, I, my, the fact that I own a house is going to become irrelevant because when people come to my funeral, there's not gonna, my house is not going to be here attached to the casket. Your 401k, your, your, your stock portfolio is not going to be placed along with you to make the trip from here to wherever it is you're headed. And yet we measure so readily 
what we have, who we are, and what our value is, and whether or not we're a winner or other people are winners by virtue of those kinds of things that can't go along with us. And the tragedy is when this becomes the main scorecard by which we measure both other people and ourselves, is that we succumb to doing the kinds of things that may get us where we want to get, may score for us the way we want to score, they're not good. And so, for example, if you're in your mid-30s, the, the sky's the limit in your career. You're working in a company that requires government testing in order, to be, <clears throat> in order to have the product you've made be sold. And the testing's not really going well, and, the, and you're responsible for the statistical analyses. And your boss comes to you and says, we need to have those test results look a little different way than they're actually looking right now. If your scar, scorecard is the kind that says, I need to be, I need to get to this salary figure, or I need to get to this particular position in the company, you may well say, I'll take care of doctoring those reports. Over the years, I've had uh, people come to me who are in miserable marriages, and they sit across from me at my desk, and after reviewing yet again how awful their marriage is, and I'm not talking about situations where there's uh, abuse, but uh, I don't like him. I don't like her. Uh, he treats me like this. She treats me like this. <clears throat> and, and as they recap how awful it is, they'll get to this point. And I've been praying, and I believe God wants me to be happy. Therefore, you know the rest. And do you notice Jesus talking about the, the people who are happy now? And he says, you're laughing. And Jesus doesn't have anything against laughing. But he's talking about people for whom the, 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 the scorecard is determined by whether or not I'm always happy. And Jesus says, you're laughing now. But a time's coming when your life's going to be marked by sorrow instead of laughter. There's, there's no doubt about it that if you pick Jesus' scorecard, your life is going to be radically different than if you pick the crowd's scorecard. The tragedy is that most people don't find out until it's too late that the things that they valued, the kind of scorecard that they um, thought was an important one, really doesn't provide them what they thought they would. Let's just talk about that thing of wealth. And I know if you're here this morning and maybe you're a college student or you're just getting out of college and you're kind of starting out in your career, you think the ideal is for you to make a boatload of money. John D. Rockefeller was one of the most wealthy uh, Americans who's ever lived based on dollars of his day. <clears throat> and he was asked one time, uh, Mr. Rockefeller, how much money is enough? To which he replied, and this, had, this man had more money than he could have spent in 20 lifetimes, more money than his family could have spent in 20 lifetimes. And his answer was, just a little bit more. Let me take you to Ecclesiastes chapter 5. King Solomon, in his day, was the wealthiest man who had ever lived, wisest man who had ever lived, at least up to a point. And then the wisest and wealthiest man lost his way. There were two things that 
did that. One was his lust for other women, and two was his pride. And as he looked back on his life, he made some observations of a man who thought that this was the gold ring, this was the scorecard. He's looking back now and saying, I guess I was wrong. Ecclesiastes chapter 5, beginning at verse 10. Those who love money will never have enough. That's what Rockefeller said. Those who love money will never have enough. How meaningless to think that wealth brings true happiness. The more you have, the more people come to help you spend it. <laughs> you listen to some of the celebrities out in Hollywood or the ones in the, uh, the NBA or NFL, and man, as they as they succeed and as they make money, all of a sudden their houses fill up with friends they didn't know they had. Any of you ever put a pool in your backyard? All of a sudden you have more friends than you ever imagined you'd have. People to help you spend it. So he asks the question, so what good is wealth except perhaps to watch it slip through your fingers? People who work hard sleep well. He's talking here about the laborer who has to work really hard just to, make, just to get by, to get, make a living. They sleep well whether they eat little or much. But the rich seldom get a good night's sleep. They're always worrying, am I going to have enough? Uh, am I going to be able to hang on to what I have? And th this, is, this is true in so many areas in which the crowd tells us you should score life this way. And we want to get to here, and it, it, unfortunately, it takes maybe 20 years to get here or 30 years to get here, and then we get there and we look back and say, snap, this didn't do what I thought it was going to do. I, I wanted this, and I set my eyes on this and, and my heart on this, and I worked hard toward it. Maybe it's wealth. Maybe it's some sort of recognition. Maybe it's politics. Uh, maybe it's uh, education. Uh, maybe it's a mate. And I, I, I worked hard to get here. Now I've gotten here, and all of a sudden, it's just not as, it's not what I thought it would be. It's not as soul-satisfying as I thought it would be. And so then, now we sketch a new goal, a new brass ring, a new gold ring, and we try to aspire to that, thinking when we get there, that's going to give us the satisfaction. And it doesn't. Because we're using the wrong scorecard. The scorecard that we're being shown by the crowd is a scorecard that measures everything by what takes place here on earth. And Jesus says, what matters, the scorecard that matters is what takes place later in heaven. And he speaks to his disciples. He said, people are going to look at you as if you have apparent loss. Uh, the kinds of things that are going to be true of your life, poverty, hunger, weeping, being mocked and cursed as evil because you follow the Son of Man. That's increasingly becoming true in this country. If you stand for the kinds of things that Jesus stands for, if you are the kind of person that Jesus calls you to be, not only are you being marginalized and rejected, but now your opinions are being shaped as some sort of evil. And Jesus said, this is a different kind of scorecard. You're not going to worry about whether or not the people around you think that you are a winner or a loser because ultimately a day is coming when you are going to be 
the ultimate winner and others at a loss. Jesus had told that rich young ruler in Luke chapter 18, man came to him and said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, you know the commandments? And he said, yeah, we know the commandments. I've kept them all. And Jesus says, one thing you still lack. Get rid of all your stuff. Sell it on Craigslist and give the money to the poor. And then you will have treasure in, you remember where he says you will have treasure in where? Heaven. See, you've invested all of your energies in, in accumulating treasure here on earth. What you need to do is divest yourself of that so that you have treasure in heaven. And the Bible says that man went away sad because he had great wealth. You see, he wasn't willing to trade scorecards. Jesus wants to make sure that these men understand that if they're going to follow him, it may cost them friends, it may cost them job, it may cost them marriage, it may cost them a promotion, it may cost them the respect and honor of their neighbors and even family members. Let me take you to 2 Corinthians just to give you an example. <clears throat> the Apostle Paul, greatest missionary in the early church, wrote 13 books of the New Testament, and this is what his life was like. I'm going to drop in in the middle of verse 23. <clears throat> I've worked harder, been put in prison more often, been whipped times without number, faced death again and again. Five different times the Jewish leaders gave me 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. I don't know about you, but I'm listening to this and thinking, I've got to get me a new job. Three times I was shipwrecked. Once I spent a whole night and day at drifted sea. I've traveled on many long journeys. I have faced danger from rivers and from robbers. I have faced danger from my own people, the Jews, as well as from the Gentiles. I faced danger in the cities, in the deserts, on the seas. I faced danger from men who claim to be believers but are not. I have worked long and hard, enduring many sleepless nights. I have been hungry and thirsty and have often gone without food. I have shivered in the cold without enough clothing to keep me warm. And this will be a great place for us to remind ourselves that following Jesus was never meant to be a bed of roses. And if you're on the way to Jesus and somebody hasn't told you this yet, I want to tell you this this morning. That the call to Christ is a call to, as the video said this morning, is a call to sacrifice. And if that is not your cup of tea, then Jesus is not your cup of tea. The problem is, that if you pour yourself and invest yourself deeply and richly into these other things that are on earth's scorecard, is that you eventually and ultimately lose. If you come to Jesus in this life, your peers may pass you, uh, surpass you financially, heartache might follow you and haunt you. It's interesting, um, I would love to sit down uh, as I did back in 2000 with a, a pastor from the persecuted uh, church world and compare notes with him 
about what our people think about it. People in his church, people in my church. One of the conversations I've had frequently over the years with people is uh, when they're going through a, 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 just a almost endless series of trials, is why is God al- allowing all these bad things to happen, happen to me? And doesn't he know that I'm at my wit's end? And then I talked to Pastor Tim in Vietnam, who tells me about what life is like in their church, in a country where they are not only marginalized, but despised by the powers that be. And everything is done to make their life hard and difficult and to keep religion at bay in this communist country. And I ask him, how can we in the American church in the U.S. pray for you and people in your churches? And he starts with this. Don't pray that persecution will end. Huh? It's, it, it's the fiber of our church. And I think it's the fiber of the church because they have come to understand how the ultimate scorecard is measured. Because you see, the scorecard ultimately is going to determine your destination. What Jesus says in this passage in Luke chapter 6 is that there is a day coming. Remember all those words, this awaits you, this awaits you, this awaits you. And if you're going to be my disciple, this is what ultimately awaits you in heaven. And if you refuse to be my disciple and you're the crowd, this is what ultimately awaits you in hell. You have it good here, time's coming where you're not. You have it bad here, time's coming where it's going to be good. I uh, want to channel Francis Chan here. I stole this illustration from him. you take this rope and I want you to imagine that this rope measures eternity now it doesn't because it has an end on it this measures eternity and then here at the end of this rope this little four inch black section is your life your life maybe 30 years 60, 90. But compared to all of this, and how often, and how regularly, and how routinely, and how almost automatically we're keeping score by virtue of the little four inches. And all of this is neglected. What are you investing your life in? What are you determining determining wins and losses by? Let me take you to Matthew chapter 7. Go back to the Sermon on the Mount and hear what Jesus has to say. Beginning verse 13. 
You can enter, you can enter God's kingdom only through the narrow gate. Now, there are a couple of thoughts about this passage that some scholars have. One is, is Jesus actually saying that there aren't going to be many people going through the narrow gate? When he talks about the narrow gate, does he mean not many people are going to go uh, through it? Because he goes on to say the highway to hell is broad and its gate is wide for the many that choose that way. And I happen to agree with those that say Jesus was deliberately using terms like wide and broad and narrow here because the tendency is for most people to pick the kind of scorecard that the crowd offers. And that it is less likely that people pick the scorecard that Jesus offers. And so they're looking at life through these four inches these 90 years, these 70 years, these 20 years, and all the rest of eternity is being overlooked. You can enter God's kingdom only through the narrow gate, which is Christ. The highway to hell is broad, and its gate is wide for the many who choose that way. But the gateway to life is very narrow, and the road is difficult, and only a few ever find it. Now, if you've been here any length of time, you've heard us speak about the gospel. The gospel is Christ died and rose again for sinners like you and me. Period. And in order to access that narrow gate, what we must do is turn to Christ in repentance. Repentance means to change our mind about our sin, to turn and go the other way. But our faith is in Jesus Christ and our power to fight sin is in Jesus Christ. It's not in us. So there's no kinds of performance that we have to do. And Jesus did all the performing. Nevertheless, just like if you're playing Texas Hold'em, I won't ask for a raise of hands how many know how to play this, but if you're playing Texas Hold'em <clears throat> and you have four aces in your hands, Whatever chips are in front of you, you are what? All in. And having Jesus is having four aces. Or if you play a wild card, it's five aces. And when you're all in, you might become poor. You might get hungry. Your life might be marked with sorrow. <clears throat> in this life. But that's not the scorecard of heaven. And what awaits you in heaven is something that you can't even imagine. Even reading what you read in the scriptures, we can't begin to comprehend. No eye has seen, no ear has heard. No mind has comprehended what God has in store for those who love him. Let's pray. you're here this morning and you don't know Christ this would be the great day change all that 
this would be a day for you to say, mm, I don't fully understand the wins and losses you've talked about. I do understand that there is an eternity coming. I don't understand all what it's about. But if Jesus is the secret to that, I want him. Or maybe you have been keeping score by the world and you realize it hasn't satisfied. It, you get to a level and then you've achieved it. Now what? Now you worry about hanging on to it. Maybe if it's your job, there are other people nipping at your heels. <clears throat> Maybe you set a new goal for yourself. Maybe once I've achieved that, that will give me satisfaction, fulfillment. I can promise you it won't. Because God did not design the world for us to find satisfaction here. He did not design you to find satisfaction here. He designed you to have a love relationship with him. And in that, through Christ, to find satisfaction. And so maybe this is the day that you want to turn faith to Jesus. And if you want to do that, there's no magic. There's no certain words you need to say. What does need to happen is you have to acknowledge that you are a sinner. Every bad thing you've ever done, every good thing you've failed to do is a sin. And if you've only done one, the Bible says you're as guilty as those who've done a million because God's standard is perfection. And so you need to acknowledge that you are a sinner. And you need to tell God in some fashion that you are prepared to turn from sin. Not that you'll never sin again. You can't promise something that won't be true, but rather that with his help, you will turn from sin and live at war with sin the rest of your life and put your faith in Jesus meaning Jesus said with my blood when I died on the cross with my blood I paid the price for your sin and so you simply say I, I want to you tell God I want to put my faith in Christ to save me and if you'll do that he will save you and there might be some tough stuff ahead of you. There probably will be. It's all what the scorecard is about. But that's for the four inches. And for all eternity, God's going to welcome you into his heaven. He will make you in an instant, as Jesus said to his disciples, it, the, the kingdom of God's yours, in that instant that you repent of your sin and put faith in Jesus Christ. He will make you his son. He will make you his daughter through Christ. In that instant, eternity starts at that moment for you. You have heaven as surely as if you are there already. Not because of what you do, but because of what Jesus did. And I'm going to just give you a moment quietly. You can think these thoughts and God will hear you. Give you a moment. If you want to turn to Christ and get the right scorecard, just do that right now.